Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. When we think, when we do anything, neurons fire in our brains, they give off tiny electrical discharges, and those electrical discharges can be picked up by these consumer EEG, electroencephalography devices. They can be a headband, they can be um, newer ones are integrating into earbuds or headphones. And it's easy to imagine how if these headsets become more widespread, and people have access to the brain data that the headsets and earbuds and other things are generating, that that kind of subliminal priming to probe the brain for information can be possible without a person even being aware of it. That's Nita Farahany. She's a law professor who, like me, has a fascination with technology. That's taken her on a deep dive into neurotechnology, the ability to read and record our brainwaves, our literal brainwaves, the electrical language of our thoughts and actions. Her new book, The Battle for Your Brain, explores the many good things that can come of this ability. But it also warns how allowing others to eavesdrop on our brains, with or without our knowledge, can threaten our rights to privacy, freedom of thought, and self-determination. I'm so eager to talk to you because your wonderful book, put me in touch with things that I didn't even know were possible. Right. <laughs> Amazing. Neurotechnology, it's already here. It has already arrived. And uh, that is, I think, probably the first, I hope, major contribution of the book is that these technologies that I've been following for quite a long time now, I think most people don't they're just not aware that it's already here, that it no, has arrived. No, no, and I, I love tech stuff, and I'm, I was totally unaware of some of the stuff. There's a good outcome to much of what you talk about in the book, and there's a scary outcome, too, that's not only possible, but perhaps even happening now. But before we get into the scary part, let's talk for a minute about what's good. I mean, you, you, <laughs> right. you, you use a neurotechnological device to deal with your migraines, right? Yes. So so when when we think, when we do anything, neurons fire in our brains, they give off tiny electrical discharges, and those electrical discharges can be picked up by these consumer EEG, electroencephalography devices. So they can be a headband, they can be um, newer ones are integrating into earbuds or headphones. 
And there are different bands, uh, kind of wavelengths of brainwaves. And you're trying to decrease your beta brainwaves, which are increased when you have stress levels, and increase your alpha um, and even gamma brainwave uh, bands when you're trying to meditate. And when you achieve that, for me, I usually focus on a happy memory of my oldest daughter. I have one kind of seared in my brain that I can think of and recall. And when I do that and focus on that, I feel physically the stress decreasing and I get chirping birds when my brainwave activity signals that same decrease in stress level and increase in the the brainwave bands that signal that I am experiencing a more meditative or relaxed state of mind. There's a device or a program put out by Control Labs Mm-hmm. That allows you. It allows you to type with your brain. You don't need your fingers. That's the idea. Is this perfected? I mean, can you actually use it? It's not perfected yet, but it's. Uh, I mean, the demonstrations of it have been pretty powerful. So, that's one of the things that really motivated me to to write my book. I've been following these trends for a really long time, but the headband, like the one we were talking about. It's kind of silly looking. I'm not going to wear it in public all day, every day. (laughs) And so some of the things about the scary parts that we're going to get to that I worried about, I was a little bit less worried about that immediacy of that problem because I just didn't, I didn't see us integrating that kind of technology into our everyday lives. But I saw this presentation by Control Labs where they had figured out like when you're, when you think about typing or moving your hands, you have motor neurons that go from your brain down your arm and into your hands and it can that th- those signals can be picked up by electromyography or EMG and control labs was trying to develop a device that would basically look like a watch or be integrated as a sensor like you might have your heart rate sensor in an apple watch that could pick up your intention to move your hands and then decode those signals. And then eventually you wouldn't have to type at all. You would just think about typing and it could decode those signals that are being sent down to your arm as well. And I was, I was, when I heard this presentation, I was like, oh, okay, well that's, once you can integrate brain sensors into our everyday devices, like a watch or our headphones that we're already using to listen to music or our AirPods or earbuds that we're already, you know, taking conference calls with, and it's just an additional sensor, then, you know, kind of the more mainstream uses and more continuous uses of it, we're going to go mainstream. And so I was really... I was really convinced that that company was going to get acquired by Apple because it just seemed to like it made sense, like put it in the Apple Watch. So I was I was stunned actually when just a year after hearing that presentation, Meta acquired Control Labs for some undisclosed sum, but believed to be like at least a half a billion dollars. And I was like, oh, okay, these things that I've been seeing, these trends that I've been seeing, they are about to go seriously mainstream. And. One of the aspects of the business model of Meta is to sell you things before you know you want them. Yes. And this is, if they can read your brain, that's a great way to do it. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely right. Now, I'll say this, which is picking up your intention to move or type is going to be less information than if they were using EEG directly on your brain. There you might capture raw brainwave data rather than motor signal data. But that being said, there's still a lot of very sensitive information. Like if I'm thinking about typing or sending a letter, but I don't actually do it, but you can pick it up from just the watch that I'm wearing, 
um, and decode that information, a lot of information I wouldn't otherwise, you know, share will be discoverable. Or every time I click or move or, you know, uh, I see an advertisement and my hand twitches in excitement or something like that, all of that could be decoded by this. And Meta has not been particularly responsible with our personal data. I'm mm. not um, really excited about giving them my brain data. Let's go full tilt into the scary part. Right. It's impossible not to. <laughs> One of the scariest stories I ever heard was how researchers were able to steal a credit card number from someone's brain. Right. Now, they were conditions that most of us won't go through ordinarily, but right. it eventually could be possible to do something like that from the way that you've described it. What happened in the research situation so far? Your brain has a lot of pre-conscious signals of, of recognition, for example. So, for example, if I said, um, I want to try to figure out what your PIN number is, and I flashed a number before you, before you even consciously process what number is in front of you on a computer screen, um, I could look for signals of recognition, something like a P300, a, P, a pre-conscious signal of recognition in your brain. And the researchers were using those pre-conscious signals of recognition in the brain to figure out if they could in a gaming environment, because a lot of these headsets are already being used by gamers to navigate through, um, you know, kind of control, contr like control the joystick with their brain instead of using a joystick, control the... So that already exists. Those gaming devices already exist, yes. Wow. And so what they wanted to see is if that in, in the gaming environment, in the video games that they were playing, and you can imagine this in the metaverse pretty easily as people start to increasingly engage in the metaverse and there are these brain sensors embedded in uh, VR headsets. So they wanted to see as a question of, of looking at cybersecurity, could they subconsciously through subliminal priming figure out what a person's PIN number was and even their home mailing address and they were able to do so accurately through detection of these pre-conscious signals. Now, these were, you know, volunteers. They, they weren't doing it by surreptitiously, mm -hmm. um, you know, stealing it uh, from, from people. They were doing it with the intention of trying to reveal the cybersecurity risk. But it's, it's startling that it's already at that degree of accuracy. And it's easy to imagine how if these headsets become more widespread... And people have access to the brain data that the headsets and earbuds and other things are generating, that that kind of pre-conscious or, you know, subliminal priming to probe the brain for information can be possible without a person even being aware of it. Because am I right about this? You can flash surreptitiously so that it's below the person's consciousness. That's right. Yeah. Numbers combinations of numbers or letters. Right. And th there's a signal given off by the brain when it recognizes that combination and get an answer. That's right. Wow. When people share their data voluntarily, sometimes it's just a fun experience, like, like, like the Ikea store experience you talked about. There was a marketing gimmick that um, Ikea ran a couple of years ago where they had these limited edition rugs that they would uh, create with artists. And they were having a problem that the artists 
um, were creating these wonderful rugs and limited editions, but people were coming and, and buying them to resell on eBay. And so they decided that in order to buy the rug, you would have to wear an EEG headset and prove that you really loved it. And their algorithm would detect love when you looked at the rug uh, through decoding of your EEG. Now, it's a little hokey whether or not they could actually do that. It also amazes me that they could distinguish between your love of the rug and your love of the dollar signs you saw when you looked at the rug. <laughs> right, right. I mean, there, there's all kinds of methodological reasons we can question the uh, experiment itself. But the fact that people willingly put on one of these headsets um, as part of this over the course of a week and, you know, in, in the advertisement that they talk about this, they say everybody loved it and, um, you know, thought it was a great experience. That's how I think the kind of normalization of, of people unwittingly sharing their brain data occurs. They put on these headsets, they don't even give a second thought to what is the data that's being collected. They think it's only being, you know, that the only thing that's being analyzed is do they love the rug and don't even realize really the, the breadth of information that could be mined in the wrong hands. Um, and so th that's, I think, what we can expect a lot more of. We see that all the time with people signing up for social media or free services where it's not really free, you're paying for it in your personal data. Um, and I think that's what will happen with a lot of this technology is people will use it. Like, you know, there's a, a partnership with a perfume company and a nerd tech company where the idea is for people to go up to the um, uh, counter in a in a store and put on one of the headsets while they smell customized perfume and the uh, you know the the manufacturer will then customize your perfume based on your brain response to the smells and and again I think people will will do this because they'll think it's novel they'll think it's fun they'll think it's you know oh great like uh, it's free for me to use it and I'll get a customized perfume. So I think there's a lot of that kind of unwitting sharing, but there's also voluntary sharing that people are engaged in. When when I was doing research into the book, I came across um, some researchers who were using these headsets as part of the classes they were teaching for meditation. And then the people from the class would all join together on social media and they would post their brainwave data to share with one each with one another and to compare it against each other's um, and to analyze it for one another and say like oh you know I see your gamma level here and oh that practice really seemed to work well and so I mean I think there's going to be a lot of that that will happen as well where people start to compare their brain metrics against one another um, and they invited me into this Facebook group and I was able to you know look and watch and see and and um, you know, interact with them as they were sharing their brain data with one another. And I was, I was just amazed. I asked him, you know, do, do you worry about sharing this data? Um, do you worry about the privacy concerns? And I think he said something to the effect of, you know what, I'd, I'd never even thought about it. Mm. And that I think is the most telling that I don't think people will even think about it in certain settings or even realize the richness of the data that could be mined for other things. At this stage of development of this technology, a couple of things worry me, as I, as I can tell they worry you. One is there's nothing to stop a manufacturer of headphones or earbuds from putting this technology in without telling you. 
Well, that's even more chilling, Alan. So I hadn't gone there. You're even more dystopian than I am, which is that the brain sensors <laughs> are going to be surreptitiously uh, embedded. the first thing I thought of. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I was I was thinking people willingly buying these, knowing that they're sensors. Well, but that that's too. A, yeah, that no, too. you're and right. I, I, I'd probably be first in line. <laughs> but then if they're collecting brain data, on the device I'm using to meditate better, That company has a lot of information about how my brain operates, what it responds to. That's right. And there's no reason at the moment, as far as I can tell, there's no reason for them not to sell it to Meta or... That's right. And already there are some companies that have already started to um, use that data and to sell it to third parties for people to gain insights at an aggregate level about... You know, this is what the brain looks like when it's paying attention. This is what the brain looks like when it's monitor- when its mind is wandering. But, you know, when you when you combine that information, here is what the person was looking at on their computer screen. Mm. These are the Google search terms that they entered, and here's what their brain data, how their brain data reacted to. You are creeping right? me out. <laughs> I know, I know, and this is. This is the creepy reality that I've been living in for a while. So I'm, I'm bringing people into the fold so that they can, they can be uncomfortable with me. <laughs> and you did an enormous amount of research in this book. You covered not only our society, but you've got Germany, China. Yes. And some of the potentially most abusive uses of what we're talking about are already at work in China. Yes. Monitoring the workers, everybody in effect. Well, not to, not just not China. Isn't it happening here too? It is. It's happened here. It's happened in educational facilities here. It's happened in schools. It's happened in workplaces. It's happening, you know, with government use of the technology. It is happening with interrogation of criminal suspects. Here in the U.S., the interrogation has happened with the consent of criminal suspects. In other countries, it's happened without their consent. They've been, you know, required to be subjective to brain interrogation. How would that work? Similar kind of brain recognition is is primarily what has been done, which is to try to uh, require a person to wear one of these headsets and then asking them a series of questions, you know, to see, do they recognize the voice? Do they recognize the suspect? Do they recognize the co-conspirator? Do they recognize the murder weapon? Mm. Um, you know, issues or facts that only somebody who was involved in the crime would recognize. And so, like I document in the book, how many countries and police departments already have used this across the globe. Um, and and I just, I don't think people are even remotely aware of any of this happening. How does it work when they monitor the workers in a factory? Yeah, here's an example. So you wear a hard hat for construction or for mining or something like that. And in the hard hat embedded into it are EEG sensors that make good contact with the skin. It's fitted to you. Um, you wear those throughout the workday and uh, it monitors your fatigue levels, for example, um, or monitors your uh, attention um, or distraction. Uh, and it's, you know, in general, these more narrow metrics are what are being used for factory workers, for truck drivers, for commercial pilots to try to figure out, you know, we, we have driver assist technology that's in a lot of cars. People use those and they try to figure out based on how the person is steering and, you know, cameras, whether the person is falling asleep. The idea of brainwave monitoring is in earlier stages, before you would start to exhibit some of that behavior that you're falling asleep, 
your brain starts to show levels of fatigue that are dangerous. And so mm. it would give an alert uh, to the manager, to the employee saying, this person is starting to experience dangerous levels of fatigue. In China, there are reports of those same types of sensors being used to pick up emotional levels of workers and whether or not they um, exhibit emotional levels that could be problematic for disrupting the you know, workplace. Or there's even reports in the past year of using those same brainwave sensors to start to probe to figure out what the political ideology of the uh. worker is. That, so, that, that, that's, a, that's a worse step than the one that really struck me, Yeah, which was if they observe the brain activity of all the workers at the same time and find patterns of synchronicity, right? that could be an indication that they're planning something like joining a union. Yeah. You can start to compare brainwave activity across employees. And then, of course, my brain goes to the, you know, what's the worst case of how that could be used? And I think, well, given all of the anti-union and surveillance tactics that are being used in workplaces, you want to figure out if there is brain synchronization that there shouldn't be because those people shouldn't be working together unless something's going on. You start to look for those patterns of synchronization. And the more powerful the AI is, and the bigger data that they collect, right? If you're just collecting fatigue levels, you wouldn't figure that out. But if you're collecting what's called raw brainwave data, which is all of the bands of electrical activity at the same time in the brain, you could mine it for things like that. When we come back from our break, Nita Farahaney explores what we as a society and as individuals will need to do if we're to keep our thoughts to ourselves. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? more confident, capable surgeons, and even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now 
from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Nita Farahany. Given the ability of neurotechnology to see into our brains, I wondered whether existing guardrails protecting our right to privacy need reinforcing. Do you think that this is covered by our present notion of freedom of speech? Or do we need a more specific statement that we need, that we have freedom of thought? Mm -hmm. So I think we have to recognize a broader conception of freedom of thought. I don't think freedom of speech covers it. Um, I do think that freedom of speech begins with thought. But I think if you look at most of our existing protections in U.S. law and international law, they really imagine a world in which you can't get at information in the brain. Most of the um, laws that I've looked at don't provide adequate protection because they just don't contemplate this reality. I think what we have to do is recognize a right to cognitive liberty, and cognitive liberty would include a right to mental privacy, a right to freedom of thought, and a right to self-determination for the choices that we want to make about how we use and how our brains are affected. And what freedom of thought would mean is, is really a much broader conception than just freedom of religion, which is how it's currently been applied in international human rights law. So it's about really broadening our existing international human rights to address this reality that we are already facing. So does freedom of thought, would that include all brain activity or certain kinds of thoughts? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, so freedom of thought is an absolute human right. Mental privacy is a relative one. That is, you can, just like any privacy, there's a balance of interest between the individual and society. Freedom of thought says you can't get at the thought at all. Like you can't, you can't punish people for their thoughts. You can't decode the thoughts. You can't manipulate the thoughts. And I think we have to recognize that what you can get from the brain is not all thought, right? I may be able to pick up, for example, um, a disturbance in electrical activity, which signals um, that there is a tumor growing in the brain, for example, mm -hmm. or that there's, um, you know, the person has early stages of ALS or some other kind of disease. Um, that's not information that I think of as thought, even though you can decode it from brainwave activity. And I think freedom of thought really needs to be addressed as an absolute human right to, you know, thought as we think about more complex, like the, the thinking about words and concepts and ideas and images in our mind. That I think is what freedom of thought really is going to be designed to protect. Mental privacy, I think, would protect the entirety of it, everything, but it would be a relative interest, right? There may be times in which societal interests are strong enough that we think some limited aspects of brain functioning can be accessed for certain purposes. For instance, if you wanted to know how common a brain disorder was, you might want to aggregate all of the brain scans or the brain information that you're getting through these various devices. And if it's aggregated and not pinned down to any individual person, that could be useful epidemiologically, I would imagine. Yeah. So I imagine a world in which somehow we could get from where we are to a place where in the aggregate we could share the brain data that we're going to be generating, at least with 
scientists and researchers who would be using it for health and for the benefit of the common good. If you could figure out what the earliest stages of brain tumors are or the earliest stages of glioblastoma or, you know, an epileptic seizure, uh, the signature of it an hour before it occurs, you can get there through aggregation of brain data. And we don't have large data sets of healthy people wearing everyday brain sensors. And so, um, you know, I, I, I hope for a future where we could get to a place where where people who want to could consent to sharing their brain data for purposes of research and health, where it wouldn't be misused against us, where we would have safeguards against that kind of misuse of the dystopian vision of how the data could be used. So how can we get there safely? What, what do you think are some of the solutions to the scary parts of our conversation? The starting place for what I think we need to do is recognize an international human right to cognitive liberty. And what that would look like is we have the existing Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, It doesn't require everybody getting together and adopting a new right. The Human Rights Committee that oversees the um, ICCPR, that's the, the treaty that implements the civil and political rights that we have, could recognize there's a right to cognitive liberty. And what that means is that we have to update existing human rights to privacy, to include mental privacy, freedom of thought, to include these types of intrusions, and self-determination to be an individual right to self-determination. That's the starting place. And the reason I think that's the starting place is because it gives us a default set of rights. If an employer then, for example, wants to access any brain data, the starting place is no. And (laughs) then they have to show that there is a bona fide legal reason, an exception And then they have to follow the best practices, which is data minimization and transparency about how they're using the data. But the starting place is they have to make the case for the exception rather than where we are with most other privacy and most other data aggregation, at least in the United States, which is the default is people can do whatever they want with your data, right? I mean, data is being aggregated itself. Unless you you dig in and opt out, right? Opt out and and you often don't even know what they're talking about because the fine print is so carefully crafted. That's right. So I want the default rules to be in favor of the individual. And I believe we could achieve that with a right to cognitive liberty. That's not enough though, right? People violate human rights worldwide. Um, And I think that we need a lot more. We need responsible innovation of the devices. So for example, if I'm wearing uh, headphones, First of all, now that you've planted that thought in my brain, Alan, I need to make sure that the headphones that I know, whatever sensors are inside of my headphones, then I don't have to take them apart to find that. So there obviously (laughs) needs to be disclosure of any of the sensors that are included. But I also think that there needs to be like an on-off switch, right? Uh So if I'm wearing headphones that have brain sensors and I'm using them for conference calls and I'm using them to listen to music... I may not want to have my brainwave data collected all the time that those things are happening. I may want it for my own personal use to meditate or to try to hone my attention and focus, but there should be an off switch on device that consumers can turn off that enable them to not have multifunctional devices collecting that form of data. Then there needs to be transparency for the consumer to see what data has been collected, where that data is going. And I believe we should have to opt in to sharing our brain data, not opt out of having our brain data collected and commodified. What can we do now to protect ourselves as these devices get more powerful 
and perhaps still stay hidden from from our understanding. Yeah, I think step one is people need to become aware of what the technology is, what it can do, and what it can't do, right? Uh, basic earbuds with one sensor in each ear is never going to get to the place where it can really decode full complex thought. But people need to be educated and aware of what's happening so that they can be informed and empowered consumers. The second is they need to make sure that they're making the best possible choices if they do choose to buy or use any of the devices, to read the privacy and disclosure policies and choose the devices that actually empower the consumer by giving them the option to opt in rather than opt out, or to never share or disclose or commodify the data, which some of the neurotech companies have committed to. Um, and in the workplace, I think that employees need to demand that employers be fully transparent about any data that is being collected about them from their brains, um, and to have a right to refuse to wear the devices. Um, I don't think that it should be uh, a obligation in the workplace. I think there should be a right to make a choice about whether or not employees want to use it, if they think it's empowering, if they think it's helpful, and have the right and control over the data and access to and transparency, the ability to audit any data that's collected by, by the employers from their brains. So let me ask you a personal question. As headbands and headphones and earbuds and as they get more sophisticated and give you greater benefits, you're going to keep pursuing them or you're going to wait? I'm going to keep pursuing them, but I will say this, which is I think I'm relatively insulated from some of the most egregious harms that I worry about. Um, and I say that because, you know, I'm a tenured law professor. It's very unlikely that I'm going to be fired from my job or required to wear headsets that mm. monitor my brain activity by my university. Um, I'm, it's entirely possible that the government could spy on or subpoena my brainwave data. Um, and I worry about that because I don't trust uh, government, you know, use or misuse against um, individuals of this data quite yet, but I, I think it's very unlikely that I'm going to steer into any lanes in life that would put me at real risk of that kind of discrimination that I most fear. And I know that the data can't pick up my complex thought um, and make it transparent to other people, at least where it is yet. If it gets to the point where it can, and I don't have any assurances from the manufacturer, from the device, or the ability to turn it off, I don't think I'll wear one. I'll tell you this, which is I don't wear an Apple Watch even with an ECG monitor or anything else integrated. We don't have any listening devices inside of our home like, um, you know, Amazon Alexa. So I, I, I am an enthusiast of technology and I love to try it out, but I am definitely not somebody who intentionally invites surveillance into my personal life and home. Good place to end our conversation, <laughs> which has been fascinating. Thank you. We have, we always end every show with seven quick questions. Okay, great. R roughly to do with communication. Okay. And this doesn't, the answer to the first question is in general, not necessarily what we've been talking about. What do you wish you really understood? Hmm. That is tough. I think I would like to really understand 
how you can, this is hard to articulate, so let me try better. Um, so I always say to my children, you can't control how other people act, but you can control how you react. And um, that's the only thing you can really choose to do in life. I think I would like to understand how you can get to a place where you can truly do that, which is... <laughs> <laughs> Having given the advice so much, you'll be Having good to know how to do it. Having given the advice so much, I think I would love to know how you can really get to a place where you can be an observer of your own behavior and 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 act according to what your deepest principles and desires are. Second question, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So, I mean, this is so important in today's world, right? How do you actually help people understand? Um, I'm facing uh, an interesting conundrum on that very issue right now, which is that some people think that I'm saying the opposite of what I'm saying. They think I'm advocating for the widespread use of neural surveillance, even though I'm trying to raise awareness and safeguard us against it. It's hard to believe after a conversation. It is hard to believe, but you can, you'd be amazed at what people can take out of context on social media. So um, I think you have to start by assuming that people care about the truth um, and approach every conversation with the hope and belief that people, um, even if misinformed, uh, genuinely care about what the truth of the matter is. And then I think you can't attack them for uh, their misunderstanding of the facts, but give them the benefit of the doubt by saying, um, I, I've, I've read research, I've seen things uh, that suggests the contrary, and I, I, I'd love to explore that with you and mm. to present that to you. So I think it is starting by not putting somebody on the defensive, but inviting them into what you believe is a shared quest for the truth. Next question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> strangest question. Um it's got to be one of my students. My students ask me weird questions all the time. <laughs> so, okay, we can we can yeah. come back to the one occurs to you. Okay, how do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh gosh, I get compulsive talkers a lot in class, and um, I unfortunately sometimes just have to break in and say, um, "Thank you. That is incredibly." informative and enlightening and then redirect the conversation. But, but sometimes I think the only way to stop a compulsive talker is to um, cut off their soliloquy. <laughs> Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you never met before. How do you begin a genuine conversation, one that gets somewhere? Yeah. I find that the conversations I care the most about are true connections between other people and if you are sitting next to somebody you've never met before, um, starting with what do you do is rarely going to get you there. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, something that really helps them begin to open up to you by saying, you know, what's the best thing that happened to you this week? Something that mm -hmm. really gets them, you know, to, to think more broadly, but also to invite genuine reflection on their own life and to share that with you. And so I usually try to start with something like that, like, 
you know, it's so nice to meet you. My name is Nita. What is the best thing that happened to you last week? <laughs> <laughs> what gives you confidence? My parents give me confidence. My parents, I think, have inspired in me the um, ability to believe in myself as long as I act genuinely and consistent with my own values. So they've inspired me to trust my instincts and to trust in myself, and that gives me confidence. Great. Last question. What book changed your life? You know, it's it's a book I read very long ago, but uh, Flowers for Algernon is one of the most powerful books I've ever read. It's a oldie but goodie. And it's interesting because if you connect it up with where I am today, um, it really is an exploration of, of the brain and uh, the self-determination of the brain, but also losing oneself and how intimately it's connected. I read that when I was very young and it has changed my worldview. Well, I think you've changed mine a little today. <laughs> Thank Thanks, you. Um, Thank, thank you. you for your book and thank you for all your work in this, in this and many other areas. Well, thank you so much for hosting me. It was so nice to be here with you today. Great. Thanks, Nita. Thanks, Alan. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Nita Farahaney is professor of law and philosophy at Duke University, where she's also the founding director of the Initiative for Science and Society. Her new book is The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely, in the age of neurotechnology. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Kieran Setia. Living with a chronic pain condition has given him an enlightening perspective on a question that has long perplexed his fellow philosophers. There's a tendency for philosophers thinking about the good life to say, well, let's start with the ideal life. Like, that's the target, and we'll get as close as we can. And I think one thing that comes into focus when you deal with difficulty like this is that often the ideal life is just out of reach. There's no point trying to live a pain-free life when you have a chronic pain condition, and there's no point trying to, to do the kinds of things your body or social circumstance just won't permit. So the way of thinking about what a good life would be that you have when you're dealing with difficulty can't be, let's aim for the ideal. It has to be, you have to ask different questions about, you know, what's good enough? What would, what can I hope for in, in this difficult circumstance? 
Kieran Setia, author of Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. While no one knows what tomorrow may bring, Bridgestone is working toward a more positive outlook. With innovations like developing a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials. It's just one of the many ways Bridgestone is making a difference today, for generations to come. Because that's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. Hop, hop, hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.